Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. How the heck are you? We're back for the fifth season of Enterprising Individuals, and what a year it's going to be. We're going boldly even farther than we have in seasons past, talking about your favorite episodes of Star Trek with exciting guests and having in-depth discussions about the themes, emotions, and ideas behind those episodes. We've got a great discussion today, and I want to get right to it, so let me just do a little bit of business before we dive in. If you're new to the show, welcome! It's good to have you aboard. You can find all of our previous episodes and material at our website, enterprisingindividuals.com, or on your listening platform of choice. We're also on social media on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash EISTpod, and we're on Twitter at at EISTpod. And we've got a Facebook discussion group called Enterprising Interlocutions. It's there that we continue the conversations that we have on this show. We end up discussing a lot of deep themes and subjects, especially on our supplemental shows, and we want your opinions. So join us on our Facebook group to chat or just Spam, Neelix, memes, we'll take those too. Also, our parent network, Just Enough Trope, has a Discord server where we discuss Star Trek, films, TV shows, comic books, video games, every kind of pop culture topic. Join us there. I'll leave a link to the Discord in the show notes. And if you decide you like what you hear on Enterprising Individuals and you want to become part of our crew, stop by our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. Crew members get exclusive content like extended interviews with show guests, access to live episodes, and more. And if you really like the show, tell a friend. I also want to let you know that you may be hearing, hopefully, inobtrusive ads on the show this year. We've been looking for sponsors that would vibe well with the show, and you may hear the odd advertisement or two for some products and services on episodes. Let us know what you think about that on Twitter or social media, and let us know what kind of products you'd want to hear ads for. You'll also be hearing spots for some of the other programs on the Just Enough Trope Network. We've got a lot of shows on the network pertaining to pop culture interests, so if you hear something you like, go check out those shows on your listening platform of choice. On our premiere episode of this season, I spoke with comics writer Kevin Church about the TNG episode Captain's Holiday, an episode which at first glance seems like a fun Indiana Jones-style romp, but in reality it opens up a whole new world and an intriguing aspect to the Star Trek universe. It's the first mention and first appearance of Ryza, the pleasure planet where for the price of a Horgon statue you can experience Jamaharon, a sexual act so sensual and intense that it claimed the life of Curzon, the seventh host of the Dax symbiont. But let's be honest, Curzon, Curzon was getting up there. When Cialis ads tell you to ask your doctor if you're healthy enough for sexual activity, he's the guy that they're talking to. Pleasure planets like Ryza or Wrigley's Pleasure Planet or Argalius aren't discussed too much on episodes of Trek outside of being punchlines or the setting for a morality tale or two. But as Kevin and I began to explore the topic, we began to wonder, how exactly does a pleasure planet work? If there's no money, is anybody getting paid? Uh, what's the Federation's stance on sex work? We always hear how cool everybody in the Federation is with romance and sex, but we sure don't see that in effect on screen all that often. Kevin and I also realized that we were way out of our depth and had no idea what we were talking about, so I got in touch with Maggie McNeil. Maggie is a writer, a sex worker, and a sex worker rights advocate. She's also a diehard Trek fan, and she's been contemplating how sex and sex work is portrayed in Trek her whole career. 
During our talk, we discuss her long-running blog, The Honest Courtesan, the Federation's policy towards decriminalization of sex work and what other galactic powers think, and the real-world struggles that face sex workers in our own century. It's a fun and fascinating discussion, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, just a note, as usual, this show is fairly PG in its presentation, but we are talking about adult themes and topics on this one, so it's up to you if you want your kids listening in. All right. The Rizian sun is shining. Grab your Horgon or your novel. It's up to you. And with that, let's get underway. My guest on the show today is Maggie McNeil. Maggie is a writer, blogger, sex worker, and sex worker rights activist. On her long-running blog, The Honest Courtesan, she shares her thoughts about sex work, its relationship with society, its portrayal in news and media, and more. The Honest Courtesan contains over 3,500 essays, some of which have been collected in her new book, The Essential Maggie McNeil, Volume 1, which is currently on sale. Maggie, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Um, I always ask first-time guests on the show how they first discovered Star Trek. How did you become a Star Trek fan? Uh, I first discovered, uh, I think I might be dating myself just a little bit, but uh, <laughs> my my dad used to watch Star Trek when it was on the air on, on NBC back in the late 60s. And, and oh, sure. you know, be, being a kid, I, I watched it along with him. Yeah. Um, the, the only episode I can remember from first airing um, was Is There in Truth No Beauty? Um, mm. And I think I remember that one because, well, number one, it was the third season, so I was older. Yeah, yeah. And, and also because I think it's the intense visual imagery in that episode. Yes, yes. You know, I think that's what would call my attention to it as a child. Yeah, I remember that one too. I remember, remember being um, horrified when uh, Spock, as the ambassador, says goodbye and he goes behind that thing. I was thinking, oh, he doesn't have his goggles on. What's going to happen? I just remember visual things like that so much. I was always worried about Spock, uh, like in Operation Annihilate, when the uh, neural parasites are flying around, you know, and he gets one on his back. It's like, oh, no, Spock. I, I think that they they, um, they picked on Spock a lot for the simple reason <laughs> that, well, being Vulcan, you know, you they could they could the writers could say, well, this thing would kill a human, but it doesn't kill right. him kind of yeah. thing. They can create yeah. more tension. Oh, he's got he's got two livers. He's going to make it through that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Whereas uh, Kirk's just had, got the normal number of organs and uh, eyelids and, and whatnot. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and neither one of them has a red shirt, so. Yeah, so they're both going to be fine. <laughs> so not expendable. And as, as time went on, did you pick up on some of the, the newer Trek shows as they debuted? Oh, yeah. I mean, I um, the next thing... Trek when I was when I was quite young when I was getting to the uh, the stage of voraciously reading things around you know seven or eight um, yeah. I I remembered Star Trek and it um, well the the animated series was on the air too uh, I'm, I'm wanting to say that was like seventy two seventy three yeah and um, and I I loved that and I loved all the imagery and all from it and so I I used to um, go to the library and get the Blish books. Oh yeah, um, the adaptations. And then as I got older, of course, I um, I was able to buy them for myself. And um, and then eventually, um, one of the local stations started showing it again. And I, of course, started religiously watching it. And um, and then when Next Generation came out, of course, I was really excited and watched that. All the movies obviously went to the theater, saw all the movies. Yeah. Um, and um, the I didn't start kind of. It wasn't until let's see. Voyager, 
I've never seen Voyager actually. Um, oh, okay. Uh, the the the, first, the few episodes of it I watched, which were not in sequence, I I didn't like them, and I never went back. Yeah. And um, and then um, Deep Space Nine. One of these days, I'm going to see the last couple of seasons. Sure. Uh, I had some bad stuff going on in my life uh, when it was on the air, and I actually didn't even have television for a while, and so okay. it's kind of like. <laughs> but one of these days, one of these days, yeah. my best friend owns the series, so it's not like I can't borrow it from her. Oh sure, yeah, you got to get that from her. <laughs> that's what it really. That's what it really picks up. I mean, it's a strong season, or excuse me, series overall. But the benefit of them being able to build that story that doesn't just reset week to week, you know, leads up to it. Yeah, it's a really great climax for for that series. Yeah, I stopped watching. Let's see, I'm trying to think. I, I can't tell you exactly how many seasons I missed. I think it was two, but it was. Um, it's before Worf and Jedzia become a thing. Okay, sure. So that's but it's a, yeah, after it's... they've discovered the Dominion. It's after yeah. the, the they've started. So they've started dealing with the uh, the Jem Hadar and all that. But yeah, yeah. there's not a full blown war going on yet. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, there will be. <laughs> that's about right halfway through. So yeah, hit up your friend. Get get those uh, those DVDs. Uh, have you got a chance to see any of the new Star Trek series like Discovery or Picard yet? No, um, I. I I am very much a purist, and I find as I get older, <laughs> sure. yeah. I get more crotchety and more cantankerous. And, and when they, uh, <laughs> I, I begin to understand Dr. McCoy a lot more as I age. Yes. <laughs> I get that. I understand that. Um, yeah. But no, I think it's just when when they when they when they um, when they came up with the idea of redoing the original series, you know, with the with the, the Star Trek movies with Chris oh, Pico. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. I. I Let's put it this way. My reaction was a little bit stronger than a Spockian raised eyebrow. Uh, it was. It included considerable profanity and what the hell do they think they're doing and, and stuff like that. Yes. I, uh, I had a similar uh, reaction, uh, but, you know, I've had uh, over 10 years now to, uh, to come to terms. And we actually did a, a live uh, episode of the show at a convention recently. And we, you know, it was kind of a come to Jesus with uh, Star Trek 2009. Like, what's, what's really going on here? And I think uh, I, I've come through to the other side. I, I enjoy it for what it is, which is just sort of a fun a celebration of these characters, not really continuing their story, but kind of a riff on, on that, you know, all those elements that we love. Yeah. And, and then you can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you can do that. You can, you can, I mean, you, you can definitely do a, a, I think it's just different ways we approach things and we, you know what I'm saying? We, we can, we can say, um, well, like uh, I know um, Dune fans who don't like the Kyle MacLachlan movie. Sure. And I'm like, well, I, I kind of see them as different things. Yeah. You know, yeah. I see the books and, the, and, the, and that movie is, is, is different. Um, Herbert liked the adaptation. So I was like, okay, if he liked it, then, you know. Yeah, definitely. And of course, those fans now are, are waiting on tenterhooks for the new uh, movie that's coming out. And hopefully um, that'll be a little closer. And if it's not, something to get mad about all over again. Well, exactly. And, and, and Which fans is fandom. love to get mad. Yeah, that's fandom. <laughs> fans love exactly. that. They love arguing about things. Oh yeah, um, and and it's and that's fun. You know, that's that's really fun. I remember um, getting very incensed a few years ago. Uh, one of my my Twitter friends is as an astronomer, oh. and uh, we were talking about I don't recall some sort of scientific um, aspect, and uh, and I remember getting very very incensed about it. And he said something like, "See, this is why I like." 
talking to you on Twitter because you, you can never be sure where you, <laughs> you know, people, people sometimes seem very surprised that I'm a Star Trek fan. I'm like, you shouldn't be. I was a nerdy kid in the sixties and seventies. I mean, sure. my goodness. Uh, your blog, The Honest Courtesan, is impressive and it's fascinating as well. For the portion of our society uh, that doesn't really interface with sex workers, there, there's probably a tendency to not even be aware of major issues or more likely to see the industry as a whole as negative. If you had to call out the biggest issue, I mean, if you could pick one, currently facing sex workers, what would you say that it, it would be? Oh, the biggest issue right now is the uh, the sex trafficking hysteria. Um, okay. You know, about about 20, well, about 2000 is when it started, but it really hit the public eye in 2004. Yeah. Uh, basically, the, the long story short version is that um, you, you had this, these people who have always been against sex work, and they felt in the 80s and 90s as though they were losing. Um, and, and especially around the turn of the century, we, were, we had a bunch of several countries and, and areas, uh, states of Australia, et cetera, decriminalized sex work. Several European countries were liberalizing uh, and then, of course, in the United States, we had Lawrence versus Texas in 2003, which mm -hmm. decriminalized homosexuality. And so I think what happened was um, these folks saw the writing on the wall. They, they saw that society was getting more accepting of sex work and, mm -hmm. and saying things like people were beginning to say things like, well, why is it society's business what concerning adults do? Yeah. And so what they had to do was they re- um, they recycled this, uh, this moral panic from the early part of the 20th century, which in those days was called white slavery, but yeah. they gave it a new, a new name, which sounds less racist. It is not less racist, but it sounds less racist. Um, and, and so basically the, the pretense that nobody does sex work voluntarily, that we're all victims, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And the, the widespread acceptance of that is, I think, the biggest issue we have right now. And do you feel like it is a boy, like a conservative pushback against some of the, the freedoms that were coming around, as you said, at the, at the end of the last uh, millennium and the start of the new one? Or is it, um, is it an increase in awareness because of the internet and things like that? Like, what, what do you think is behind it? Well, the internet made it uh, easier for them to spread it. Yeah. Um, although, uh, if you look, it's a lot of the legacy media, uh, the TV and the newspapers and all that are actually doing the heavy lifting for that. Uh, I mean, the, the, it was the New York Times that's that launched it in January of, uh, of Oh four. Okay. So it, it's, it's definitely, um, the, the internet has helped, and, but I don't think it's, um, it's not really the conservative in the, I mean, some of them are in the, in the, in the, the way that Americans define conservative and, and, and uh, progressive or liberal or whatever. Yeah. Um, the way that, it, it, the way that Americans define those terms, it's not a, conservative thing per se, although it does have its roots in, the, um, in evangelical Christianity. But a lot of the pushing is being done by, uh, by mainstream feminists who are generally thought of as part of the left. So it, it, I, I call it the anti-sex people, regardless of where they okay. follow the political spectrum. Yeah, okay. I can see that. Well, we'll talk about that uh, a little later in the show. Uh, thanks for joining me on the show today. 
Oh, uh, you're very welcome. The uh, the world of Star Trek that we see on screen uh, in Trek is a humanist utopia. Uh, and we're told that scarcity, racism, and prejudice have all been eliminated. But for viewers like us back in the 21st century, I think that blanket statement raises quite a few questions about how that could be achieved. And the Trek franchise doesn't provide much of a roadmap to get there, uh, other than we have to get Farmer Hoggett to launch a rocket at a certain time. And uh, <laughs> the guy, <laughs> the guy, the guy, we got to get the guy from Quantum Leap to punch the right people. Um, and however they achieved it, uh, the society of the Federation is is tolerant, if not fully embracing of many institutions that are still vociferously debated uh, in our own era. And one of the least explored, I think, of those institutions in Trek is sex work. Oh, yeah. We were recently talking on this show, um, on another episode, about the TNG episode, Captain's Holiday. And that's the episode, of course, that introduces the pleasure planet Ryza to the series. And in researching the origins of the episode, uh, I learned that when the idea was being pitched for the episode, uh, series creator Gene Roddenberry seemed really excited about the idea of a quote-unquote sex planet. And he wanted to add all these things to it. He wanted to depict a, a pansexual love fest on screen with heterosexual and homosexual activity going on. And, of course, that was eventually toned down because uh, it was TV uh, to Patrick Stewart chest hair and a little bit of uh, innuendo. <laughs> but looking back at the original series and, and at early TNG and Gene's contributions to those, I have to wonder, is a freely operating, socially acceptable Pleasure Planet emblematic of the liberal ideas behind Trek's creation? Or is it the wet dream of some middle-aged sci-fi writers in the 60s and 80s? I, I think it can be a little bit both. I mean, sure. <laughs> you know, because I mean, you, we, why are we interested in the things we're interested in? I mean, uh, why is it, you know, I think we, we normally do come to things. We start from a selfish place, right? We, um, you, you, you start, if you're a disabled person, you start becoming interested in disability rights because you're disabled and it affects you. You know, if yeah. you're a sex worker, you become interested in it because, hey, you know, we've got people trying to arrest us, et cetera. Yeah. But then I think what can happen is you can, as you explore the topic, you can, you can begin to see it in bigger and bigger and bigger uh, part of the picture. And so even if um, you've got, I mean, people like, like for, you know, uh, Grandpa Heinlein, you know, yeah, I mean, sure. <laughs> when, when, you know, when he started with, with the, the sexy stuff, I mean, yeah, I think at first it was mostly just because he was interested in sexy stuff. But then, of course, as he explored it, he, it that doesn't change the fact that he covers a lot of stuff like in Stranger in a Strange Land and, yeah. and Friday and things like that. He's covering a lot of ground that regardless of how he arrived there uh, is, is very important you know, intellectually, philosophically. And, and I yeah. think Star Trek falls into that too. It, it, it doesn't matter that, that old Gene was kind of a bit of a hound. Um, the fact of the matter is he still created something which is, is uh, people are still talking about, what, 30 years almost after he's dead, you know? Yeah, that's true. It's weird too that both Gene and, uh, and Robert Heinlein were, were both uh, guys that you would think would be strict conservatives you know they're both military gene was a cop and yet they had these real liberal uh social ideals yeah um, that went right into their work and i mean you know everybody contains multitudes but it's just interesting to to see uh two guys um who started off like that you know write what they wrote yeah exactly and i mean when you think about it 
if Roddenberry hadn't done it that way, it would have been it would have been a coal pile in a ballroom, because if you've got a society which is tolerant of all kinds of different alien cultures, yeah, you know, which which some of which are very weird. I mean, even Vulcan, right, a founding member of the Federation, we find out at the beginning of the second season that there are some some situations in which Vulcan allows trial by combat with, you know, <laughs> fatal results. Yeah. I mean, if the Federation can put up with that, the idea of them not putting up with sex work would be a bit bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> you have to imagine that. And that takes place. You know, you see the Federation kind of come together in the Enterprise series, but uh, TOS takes place long after that. And they're just discovering that about Vulcans at that point. Like, I know they're secretive, yeah. but humans <laughs> wait all this time to, well, I see some weird stuff, but maybe we just won't ask them any questions about it. You know, they've been pretty good to us. Well, exactly, exactly. And I mean, and the thing about, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, you mentioned, uh, 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 you know, a few minutes ago, the thing about a world without, um, with, without prejudice. I think what has happened and I think we see this certainly more in the post gene Star Trek, you know, like in Enterprise and in um, and in later uh, bits of Next Generation and in um, and in and certainly in Deep Space Nine, that humans aren't over racism at all. It's just that having met other species, they don't view skin color as enough anymore. Right. So in other words, you know, your 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 uh, white humans and black humans aren't fighting anymore because they have Vulcans and Andorians and Tellarites and Klingons and all that to be prejudiced about. Because I mean, in the original series, my goodness, we see a lot of prejudice towards Spock. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> absolutely. Dr. McCoy is throwing out casual racism <laughs> left and right. Yes, yes, he absolutely is. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that's true. Um, and it's always sort of, uh, I guess you have to, that's the party line. You have to set up for people that we are in a different place here and the kind of things that you deal with every day, uh, they don't. But then, of course, we right. slip it back in because they obviously are in a sort of uh, allegorical way with other races and, and whatnot. Exactly. Trek, in my opinion, has this weird relationship with sex. It has this kind of, I, I don't know, like adolescent view of sex for the most part, but also this nerdy aversion to it. And the show takes every opportunity to remind you, especially in TNG, that, hey, we're beyond hangups in the 24th century. You know, we're down for whatever. But you never really see a lot of sex going on, you know, apart from the occasional Orion slave girl. Um, it's a pretty chaste franchise for how vociferous it is about how, hey, sex is cool. Yeah, I'd agree with you. Uh, and and, um, and certainly the um, one thing we've seen a lot in, in queer people talking about is um, – and and I can use that term, by the way, because I, I'm bisexual myself. So okay. <laughs> um, just in case. But um, but no, you, you see queer people talking about you know um, the lack of of representation of of, um, of same sex couples. Yeah. You know, you, we never see a lesbian couple or a, um, or a gay couple. You know, in anywhere in uh, in any of the series, and and um, I mean, maybe maybe that's changed in the past few years. You know, the ones I haven't seen, but certainly yeah, the twentieth yeah, century yeah. ones. But yeah. and um, and uh, and in fact, I even remember, um, I even remember kind of giving a side eye to the television set in the episode where they first introduced the trills, 
And do you remember that Beverly is kind of fallen in love with the, the Trill ambassador guy? Right. And then when he's the host is killed, and there's a whole subplot with Riker. I think it's right. Is it Riker? The, 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 they put yes. the, um, the implant in for a while. Yep. And then, and then the new host is female. And Beverly's like, oh, no, I can't handle this. Right. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> so you can, you can, you know, fall in love with a completely alien being who just happens to look like what you conceive of as male. Yeah. But when, when it crosses over into a woman, that's not so good. Now, I mean, our bodies are not, our bodies and, and the sexual part of our brains are not logical. I'm not saying I'm blaming the Beverly character because if you're not attracted to, a, she's not to be bisexual. No, I mean, if you're not attracted to yeah. a person, you die, and that's yeah. this way it is. But but it is an interesting writing decision, isn't it? It is, and I, I love how they looped back on that for the DS9 episode "Rejoined," where we have two female joined trills uh, experiencing, um, you know, a rekindling of their relationship, and it's just depicted visually on screen as two women being in love, two women kissing. And, you know, they got away with it. <laughs> and there's a lot of people that did kind of complain about it, but even people, it's funny. You'll see um, Star Trek, like hardcore nerd fans um, defending the idea that it's not like, you know, homosexuality. It's not supposed to represent that. It's like the, the worms, you know, themselves are sexless. And it's like, okay, well now you're just defending like non-gender or like gender neutral or intersex characters. Like people don't want to accept that what we saw was a metaphor for two women having a relationship and then society, trail society, like castigating them for having that relationship. Like that's right. what Trek is. It's allegory. It's been doing that. They've been doing that since the first season. Since My the goodness. Beginning. I mean, it, yeah. you know, talking about Vietnam, talking about race prejudice, talking about you know, the, the social unrest, talking about the hippies, talking about drugs. <laughs> yes. I mean, so on and so forth. Yeah. You know, that, and, and I love the hippie episode of, of the original oh yeah, me series. Too. <laughs> me too. Cause it's just so, it's so silly and it's so from an objective standpoint, bad that it's almost endearing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. It's great. And of course, like we mentioned before, this is all, Coming through the uh, the loving lens of you know a uh, a fifty five year old or, or however old he was, guys like I'm gonna write some. What, what are hippies like? They like music. They like flowers. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, somebody I know, a comedian I know, talks about how uh, he used to love Dragnet, but Dragnet became a real drag in like the late sixties and early seventies because it became Joe Friday just endlessly lecturing. Uh, punks about drugs and stuff like that. It's like, you think you're yeah. going to get a high? And yeah, it's just, and that's, it's kind of what that reminds me of the hippie episode. But yeah, it is, uh, it's just kind of silly and, and fun. On our Captain's Holiday episode that I mentioned, um, my guest and I were trying to envision or, or work out how a planet like Ryza or Wrigley's Pleasure Planet um, would operate in the Federation economy. And the first thing that we came up with was uh, money, the idea of money. Uh, I was reading one of your essays uh, on your website uh, about the issue of sex work, and you point out that you can teach, say, for instance, capuchin monkeys what money is, and as soon as you do that, like a male monkey, you know, tries to exchange a coin with a female monkey for sex. Yeah. Like it just seems like the exchange of something is irrevocably tied to this sort of thing. So if the Federation exactly. has no money, what happens if you take money away? in a sex work environment? If there's no money, how do you get paid or compensated? Well, the, 
uh, I'm going to answer that in kind of two two parts. Okay. The first one is that I don't. The whole idea of the Federation not having money seems to me to date to the movies and no earlier, because certainly in original series, they're talking about credits all the damn time. They're getting paychecks. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, of course. You know, I mean, Uhura buys the triple and things like that. You know, <laughs> right. well, he doesn't, he gives it to her, but, you know, he's charging a certain amount. And, um, and I think and even in, in Next Generation, you know, we see references to it. It's not until, I think, what, um, First Contact that Picard says they don't have money. Yeah, uh, you know, and so I've always kind of given that a bit of a side eye. Um, <laughs> to me, I, I view the the Federation as as what what we call a, a post scarcity society. Like yeah. in other words, they have something akin to a, a, a universal basic income, and you don't have to work if you don't want to. Right. But but a lot of people choose to anyhow. And so that's, that's the key there, right? There'd probably be a lot of societal kind of pressure to work, positive pressure, because if you're, yeah, if you're all contributing to this great federation that you're all part of, but Larry is just over there doing nothing, maybe Larry could mow everybody's lawn or something like that. Yeah. Exactly. But, and, and then of <laughs> course, you know, we see that other cultures certainly have, uh, I mean, the, the Ferengi do and, and, and a lot oh, of and yeah, people coming, yeah. coming and going out of quarks. Are all yeah. spending money. They've all got money, and if the Federation doesn't have money, then how is Quark entertaining all these Federation folks on the station? Because they've got to have something to make his time worthwhile, or he'd right. be kicking them out. Yeah. So, you know, I guess I just don't see it. But, but here's the thing: is that even um, in that world, in that universe. If you've got a place like Risa or Wrigley's Pleasure Planet, you know, if you've got more than one culture visiting that place, which because we, we presume those places are not run by the Federation, so to speak, right. that they are independent things. Yeah. Well, then all the other folks might still have it, even if the Federation didn't. Um, that's what to stop anybody else from from going there and doing that. Um, sure. I don't think that we're meant to see that there's some sort of universal thing. In fact, we're shown the opposite, you know, with the Ferengi. So that's one. But but the other fork is that um, this is going to sound a little odd, like complete, like it's off the subject, but it's not. Um, I recently in in my blog featured an article about sex workers in Mongolia, and there is a um, there's a, a mining boom going on. Uh, but it's way outside of the capital, Ulaanbaatar. And so what's happening is a lot of sex workers who are kind of oppressed in Ulaanbaatar, the, the, the cops are pretty bad there and they harass them and things like that. So a lot of these girls are, are basically packing up yurts and going out to the roads where the, 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 the truckers have to pass um, to and from the, mine, the, the, the mining uh, operations. Yeah. And they're selling sex, you know, on the roadway. Well, some of the drivers don't have much cash. And so what they have done is they have collectively agreed on a price uh, for gasoline. And what they'll do is they'll accept payment of guys siphoning gas out of their tanks. <laughs> and X number of liters, you know, 20 liters or whatever, get sure. to the session. And sure. then they sell it to other drivers who okay. need it. And so they're, they're using the gasoline 
as a medium of exchange. Okay, um, sure. <laughs> you know, during in occupied France in World War II, um, the the Nazis often paid in extra ration coupons. Right. Sure. And you know because the the uh, because the the Nazis were enforcing on occupied France this really crazy um, exchange rate like yeah. 20 francs per Deutschmark or something ridiculous like that. Huh. And so the, the French money was almost worthless during the occupation, but the ration coupons weren't. Right. And so a lot of the girls were taking ration coupons because that was the money that was useful to them. Sure. Sure. I, I mean, the, uh, the, the currency exchange office on Risa has to be pretty well stocked. I always imagine I that, yeah, if a lot of people, <laughs> different uh, races are going there, I always imagine that they just issued, um, I mean, there's, you're absolutely right um, about there having to be some kind of money or just institution. Um, but I always imagine that they issued Federation um, or, or like Starfleet officers just some script or just some kind of thing when they go someplace. Is this a money planet? Okay, so here's your... Here's a hundred bucks or whatever in local currency. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. And that and that's taken out of whatever whatever your your social credit or your or whatever. Yeah. That is, you know. Which which what, you know what are credits? We don't know what credits are. I mean, we, we, yeah. we hear credits and it'll start. What is what are credits? It's credit. Yeah, it's it's currency exactly. And of, of course, it all comes. Sort. Yeah, of some of some kind. It all comes down to to regulation. Um, regulation is a big part of sex work in our own world. And it's not really explored at all on screen, I think mostly because it's a primetime network show, but the yeah, attitude sure. the attitude of Federation citizens to the prospect of a trip to Riza seems to be fairly sanguine. I mean, you'll sure. get a few raised eyebrows at the most. And there doesn't seem to be, at least we don't hear of any particular uh, restrictions or regulations for Riza or pleasure worlds. And I think this is going into like lore. I'm, I'm not totally sure, but I'm pretty sure that Riza is a sovereignty itself. Like it's, a run by the Rysian Hedony. It's a planet. They're a member of the Federation. And as a Federation world, they've they've got their own laws and culture and what they want to do. They, they want to be a tourist and a pleasure destination. So I don't know the particulars of the Federation charter, but it seems like Ryza gets to do what it wants. And I wonder if sex work is, therefore, from the example of Ryza, decriminalized across the entire United Federation of Planets. I, I think that the Federation, from what we see, the Federation doesn't seem to have a lot of criminal laws. Yeah. Because when you think about it, I mean, um, in, in, in original series, uh, Ardana, the, the Cloudbinders planet. Right. They still got slavery. And yeah. they're a member of the Federation. Yeah, that's true. So it seems to me that the Federation doesn't have a lot of um, umbrella, top-down Stuff like that, you know what I'm saying? Except yeah. with regard to its own personnel, of course. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like we have, you know, the general orders and we have the, the directives and we have all that stuff. Yeah. But it, it seems to me that um, part of the prime directive, I mean, because, right, we don't, we don't actually know how the prime directive is worded, do we? We have no clue. Yeah. We, we see references to it. We don't know how it's worded. For all we know, the prime directive could be 50 pages long and have all <laughs> sorts <all> these... <laughs> of, you know, clauses and sub things. And, yeah. and you know what I'm saying? Um, we don't know. We have no clue. And yeah. so I think um, a part of the leaving, leaving people alone is letting them have their own 
uh, self-government. Yeah. And the Federation might decide, of course, um, that X planet, whatever it is, um, that their ways are just a little too weird. You know, so like, like, in other words, you know, like in, like in the cloud minders, maybe the Federation does decide, you know what? Maybe we don't really want our data as part of the Federation yeah. because they have slavery. And, yeah. and maybe they make that choice, whatever. But from what we can see, it looks like there's considerable latitude. I, I totally agree with that. I read somewhere, and this was not like an official thing. It was probably like a role-playing game supplement or something. But I, I read that like to consider, to be considered for entry into the Federation, you had to have uh, like a one world government or the, the equivalent, you know, you had to be sort of united. You couldn't be factional. And you ha- of course you had to have um, uh, warp capability and like one or two other things, but maybe they added, yeah, maybe after uh slave, uh, the cloud minders, they added uh, no slavery. That just seems like that's a bad thing, but uh, yeah, I, I, it seems like they're pretty open and in letting um, people, letting people's cultures be what they are. Yeah, and you know, it, it's a very libertarianish kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's like uh, the whole idea of um, one, you know, one famous statement of of libertarian or anarchist philosophy is your right to swing your fists ends where my nose starts. Um, sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and so you could say that with the Federation, right? In other words, maybe it's okay for Ardana, because we're we're going with that example, right? Maybe yeah. it's okay for Ardana to have slavery on their own planet. But as soon as they start trying to pull an Orion gig and and trade, um, you know, trade in space <laughs> in Federation, and, then sure. that's not okay. Yeah, I, I don't know. Again, you know, one of the things we talked about on on um, on track profiles was was you know the whole idea of um, that we really don't they don't fill in a lot of the the the, the gaps. There's a lot of <laughs> yeah. empty spaces on that on that. Uh, cultural map, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, you know, leaves them room to write. But at the same time, you've got people uh, living in the century that we do. We're like, oh, we could use some of those tips if you guys have those tips. Uh, just let us know. Um, there's a big difference between legalizing something and decriminalizing it. And that difference is at the heart of the debate about the sex industry currently. Can you explain the contrast between legalization and decriminalization? Yes. And, and, um, my friend, Mistress Matisse, one point she makes is that um, the reason that there's a big terminological difference between, um, between sex work and drug legalization when it comes to those terms, legalize and decriminalize, they're used almost the opposite way. And the, as she points out, that's because drugs are things and people are people. You know what I'm saying? You, you, right. you can decriminalize a thing. Um, and the way that, of course, we, we use the, the term decriminalize for drugs is that we're not going to slap you with criminal penalties if we catch you with weed, but we don't right. like it either. And we're going to take it away and you can't get a license to sell it and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you can't sell. Yeah. Because that's a thing. But how would that look with sex when sex is legal? Mm-hmm. The only thing that defines prostitution is motive. If I choose to have sexual contact with some strange guy because I'm in that sort of mood and I think it might be exciting, that's perfectly legal. Mm-hmm. If I do it with a profit motive in my mind, then it, that's when it becomes illegal. So it's, it's a thought crime. Um, and yeah. 
so you, you can't, how do you, that's one of the reasons that New Zealand um, decriminalized because when they started looking at the issue, they said, how do we know what's the difference? How do we know if a woman, if a woman decides to say, no, I'm not really a prostitute. Well, how do you prove that she is Yeah. without invading her privacy and, and all this kind of stuff? So you, you have to use the terms differently. Um, but in, in sex work, decriminalization simply means removing criminal penalties and, and police supervision from the industry so that and treating it like it was any other industry. Whereas legalization, um, one way that one reporter in Australia said it once, and I think she phrased it very well, uh, and I like, I like this phraseology, she said, um, under legalization, sex work is still conceived of as a crime for which the law makes allowances. Yeah. So like in, in Nevada, sex work is still illegal in Nevada unless you get the cops to clear you after their little background check and you work for a pimp who has a license and runs a brothel way outside of the city. And there are X number of licenses. I don't remember the exact number, but it's like 15 or 17 or whatever, or 20 something. But the point is, is that those are the only licenses there are. And if you want to open a brothel in Nevada, you've got to wait until somebody else is selling out. Oh, oh I see. <laughs> you, you know, so those are, are, that's very strict laws and regulations that no other industry has to put up with. Um, the, the example I like to use is if you want to imagine sex work under decriminalization, think about how restaurants are, um, are, are uh, regulated for health. When a health inspector comes into a restaurant and finds a violation of the code or something, right. what, does he not, what does he do? He gives the owner a piece of paper that says, these are the problems. I'm coming back next week. You better fix these. He does not bring in a squad of cops, arrest the owner, the waiters, the cooks, the diners, and everybody else, and drag yeah. them all off to jail and put their pictures <laughs> on the front page of the paper. And, you know, that's what he does not do. Right. <laughs> and and that's, that's sex work under decriminalization. Is that, you know, they, they, people that want to uh, oppose it want to say things like, oh, it's, you know, the Wild West or whatever. No, it won't. No, it's not. It's not anything like that. Right. It's it's just not treated as a police issue, just like the restaurants' health code violations are not treated as a police issue. Yeah, you know, or or if you don't if you don't um, cut your grass, and the city comes and gives you a, a, a you know a fine for not cutting your grass, they're not going to be banging down your door and arresting you because you didn't cut your grass. They're going to be you know hitting you with a fine. Yeah. Right. Right. And that kind and of, same thing. yeah, that kind of response, that overly aggressive response drives the industry underground, which of makes course. it more dangerous. Of course. I have a, an article in Reason Magazine this month oh. um, that talks about that. That's just about how um, the, some of the new laws that, that have like been passed Foster in the past Sesta. couple of years, Foster Sesta is the one specifically. Um, I just wasn't sure how much your your listeners would be familiar with it, but um, sure. But that, you know, it, it hurts marginalized people the most. Yeah. 
it because I mean, what 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 the genesis of that article was uh, Catherine Mangu Ward, the editor of Reason. Um, I was at a reception with her back in August, and and um, or was it September? September, and and she said, "Well, how has FOSTA affected you?" And I said, "Well, the thing is, it really it doesn't have as much effect on the established." Um, older escorts who've been around forever and have our clientele and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't affect us as much. The one it affects, the ones that it affects the most are, you know, the girls on the street, the girls who are not as established, the girls who are younger, they don't have a, a big clientele. Um, and of course, it's like everything, isn't it? I mean, white people and black people use drugs at roughly the same rates, but the prisons are full of black people because yeah. they're enforced against them more. Yeah. Between regulation and decriminalization, and I think I I think I know the answer, but which which do you think the Federation would do? Oh, decriminalization. Yeah, that seems like that too. They have to, because they, they don't seem to be again, if we're talking about a, a culture that doesn't think it's necessary to even dictate um whether or not uh, uh, an individual planet can have trial by combat <laughs> that's right they get to keep that yeah <laughs> if they get to keep that then why in the world would, would they come up with a regulatory structure for, for something as, as um for something as, as basic as sex it yeah. doesn't make sense it, it's just, just i think a lot of a lot of the things um it's very funny how there's a there's a chauvinism um about I think Americans particularly, I mean, just humans in general, but Americans are particularly bad with it, where the, the idea that however something is now, they can't conceive of it ever having been a different way or ever <laughs> being a different way. Yeah. And when you look at human history, because we have studied this quite a lot, um, the, the number of cultures a lot of cultures have not thought it was necessary to even pay attention to sex work. And the ones that did, which tend to be more the, the, the ones that are more complex, um, mostly just want to keep it kind of out of sight. And the majority of laws that have been made up throughout human history since really it started in classical Greece is when they started kind of uh, making up laws about that. Yeah. Most of the laws have been intended to prevent people from confusing sex workers for, quote, good women, close quote. Right. That's what most of the laws, it wasn't until comparatively recently um, that it started being anything different. It, it was, wasn't until really uh, um, about 100 years ago, uh, roughly. Before that, not at all, not at all. There, there was a, uh, I did a, a, an article a while back on a brothel that was walking distance from the, from the, the Capitol building in Washington <laughs> that used to be frequented by senators and, uh, and representatives Sure. back in the Civil War era. Right, the Gentleman's Club, yeah. Because in those days, it simply wasn't viewed as something to criminalize. It, it just wasn't. Right. And so my thought is this. It's like there was a, a statistician who um, who went to see um, the Berlin Wall in the 70s, and he made a prediction about how long it was going to be there. And he was pretty close to, he was within five years. Huh. And 
his statistical method was based on the fact that this thing didn't exist for most of history. It's here now. Right. Why would we think it's going to keep being here forever and ever and ever? <laughs> right, right. It wasn't here 30 years ago. Why should we assume it's going to be here 30 years from now? And right. it's the same thing. If sex work was not illegal in the, in the big sense, in the criminal sense, 100 years ago, or 150 years ago, maybe I should say, why should we expect it to be criminal in 150 years from now? Well, assuming that sex work is decriminalized and integrated into Federation society, uh, and even possibly seen as therapeutic, I could see the possibility of it being in places beyond pleasure planets like Ryza, like sex workers being staffed on starships as part of R and R. I mean, you've got the holodeck, and that's a whole other conversation. You know, sex in the holodeck. Yes, it is, isn't it? But, but that, <laughs> yes, that's it a, is. That's a tool for recreation, sometimes sexual. <laughs> Uh, maybe there would be a human or an alien element on ships. Um, I don't know if you've seen the uh, sci-fi show Firefly, but something like the companions on yes. Firefly come to mind. Yes. Um, uh, yes, I have seen Firefly, and yes, it's possible. And um, and of course, on on Firefly, the the companions are a kind of elite group, you know. Uh -huh. But we're we're shown in one episode that there's also regular old whores in that world too. You that's, know, that's true. Yeah. And I think that's the case everywhere. Um, on a ship, maybe, we could hope. I don't know if the Federation's that enlightened, to be honest with you. It always <laughs> seemed to me like, um, especially in the, in the Next Generation era, that they seem a little bit, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A little, little bit prudish. Not, not badly. <laughs> but square. just like... Kind of square. Like, there's just some things that the Federation, it doesn't fight against, but it also yeah. doesn't completely approve of either. Yeah. But it's sort of, you know what I'm saying? And so I'm not sure if the Federation in Picard's era um, would would have, you know, pleasure officers on ships. Yeah. But maybe it's, another hundred <laughs> years later, maybe, maybe on the, uh, when we, we saw the time, the time traveling yeah. uh, starships in, in uh, an enterprise, maybe those guys do. I don't know. <laughs> maybe they do. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny too, that especially, I mean, all of Trek is kind of like this, but certainly TOS and TNG always felt like space America to me. I know yeah, that they've got yeah. people of all the peoples of earth and different planets, but it's always space America. And so if, if yeah. they're from, if they're based on America and America still has its Puritan ideals, you would uh, never see those uh, sex workers on the ship. And it's yeah. also funny that, that you've got the great, uh, the great hypocrisy of like internet porn and stuff like that. So once yeah. you've got the holodeck, everybody just takes it there and we don't talk about it at all. Exactly. And, and you can <laughs> go to rice and you can go to things like sure. that and, and, and people. So it's like, kind of like, yeah, well, we, we don't want it on our ship. Per se. If you got that no. yeah, but if there's a if there's dedicated sex planets like Risa or Argelius, is that red light districting? Is 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 Risa the ultimate victory of space nimbies? They're just pushing it to a whole other planet. <laughs> maybe, maybe, but but I still would think that even in your typical, you know, in your your um, uh, your Paris or or Nairobi or Beijing or New York. Of of the twenty fourth century, I, I'm yeah. sure there are still plenty of sex workers, oh, you know, oh, in the cities. Because I mean, <laughs> we have to remember too, and and this is something we talked about on 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 Trek profiles, is we see in Star Trek through the lens of a military organization. Yeah, right. 
we don't really see how the Federation people live. And yeah. if you tried to judge any culture uh, in, in Earth history, which, of course, is the only one we know about right now, right? right. Um, it, by, by the way its military organizations look, you can't make much of a judgment, can you? Um, so you to, to continue your thing about the um, about you know, on staff, yeah, there have been military organizations in Earth history where there were sex workers on staff. Um, sure. France only got rid of it very recently. France had the 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 BMCs as they used to call them, the truck brothels um, huh. that were official military institutions that were brought to the front. Um, huh. They, there was, um, uh, they were, they were still in place as late as the nineties in the foreign legion. Wow. So we're not talking about, you know, a long time ago, not ancient history, Yeah. but for the most part, you have not seen that you, you've mostly seen the idea that on the ship there's discipline. And when it's time to relax, we pull into a port. Right. Yeah. And then we're dealing with, you know, whatever the local customs are or whatever yes. they have to offer. Yeah. Yeah. And I suspect that that's, that that's, I mean, certainly in the original series, yeah. um, next generation plays more coy with it, but in, in original series, my God, we're, we're, they're constantly talking about that. There's, there's, um, Argelius, there's the, the, uh, Rigel two cabaret that yeah. McCoy remembers the two cabaret girls from who are yeah. clearly showgirls. You know, I mean, it's pretty obvious with the feathers right. and everything, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's always some port. It's always some place I've been. Right. It's not the ship itself. Yeah. It's, it would, it, the customs and, and feelings about it would vary everywhere. The social climate on Riza seems to be, you know, whatever you're into is cool. You can go there for companionship yes. or Jamaharon, or if you want to ski yeah. or read, it's up to you. We're cool if you're cool. Then there's customers like Quark who kind of spoil the vibe for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> they come in there and they're super horny and they're taking up everybody's time. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and, and um, it seems like even in, um, in, in Captain's Holiday, you know, there's uh, Picard is sitting there, what? Like, he's definitely trying to like, chill everybody out around him. He's just sitting there reading a book. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Riker has to trick him into he tries basically to, yeah. signaling that he's ready, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, Ferengi society is famously misogynistic. Um, I don't want to think about what the state of sex work is in the Ferengi alliance. but I makes, don't either. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me wonder what the Federation's view of other cultures is outside of the Federation and if they feel if they have any responsibility to promote human rights in other nations. I mean, we see a lot of Orion slaves in, honestly, three different centuries of Trek on screen. Yeah. I mean, well, that's just why, you know, a lot of people have... Um, some people have griped about the um, the um, Enterprise episode where where they they look at um, at Orion society, yeah. but I kind of think that that hits. Um, how do you have a society in which an advanced society like that with slavery, unless it is not quite what it appears? If it really is full-on enslavement of the entire female half of the population, if that's really what it is, how the hell does that survive? Right. You know, it, it, it never managed to survive on Earth that long, that kind of yeah. an arrangement. It always kind right. of falls apart. Yeah. But if so, if Orions are doing it, then maybe I think the Enterprise writers were, were, were on a good 
you know, thing there. It's like, if it's that stable, maybe it's that stable because it isn't what we think it is. Interesting. I haven't seen because that it, episode it, in a while. It appears to be. Oh, ooh, watch it. Watch it. Okay. Because they, they, they delve into that. You know, they delve into what we call in kink. You know, basically they, they show that the Orion slave girls are what we would call in kink topping from the bottom. Okay. <laughs> sure. I can see that. That, yeah. that they are running the show. They're yeah. running the show. And they're just basically like, they like playing at being slaves. Sure. So basically at a certain point when you decide you're done with your quote master, close quote, you say, oh, sell me to that guy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And he does it. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, I, I'd love to see uh, a UFP Vice show. Uh, you know, assuming that they're they're not busting everybody, they're just supportive instead. So Space Crockett and Tubbs, they're going around the Federation, they're making sure everybody's got enough prophylactics, and they're, are you stocked up on massage oil? Okay, great. And then every once in a while, for sweeps, they do a raid on an Orion Slave Center, you know, and they bust everybody out, give them sweaters. I want somebody to make that happen. I'm laughing thinking about your, you think about um, if they're making sure everybody's got enough condoms, I guess if it's drugs too, then they're like, oh, let's test your drugs for purity now. Yeah. Let's make sure your space cocaine Ooh, is not is contaminated. P- yeah, it's totally pure. <laughs> You're set to go. <laughs> American society is in a lot of ways very different than European society or East Asian society or what have you. Oh, sure. And moral panic isn't uniquely American, but I feel like America has been in a state of constant moral panic uh, since I was born, and it doesn't seem like it's going to stop anytime soon. If you had to speculate, just off the top of your head, what would have to change in our society for people to stop freaking out about topics like this? You know, these very real things that affect people's lives and that they aren't going away anytime soon. I, th- I think you're not asking when, when do I foresee um, decriminalization coming or the, the war on sex, on sex workers ending. I think what I'm asking, what I'm hearing you ask is um, what will it take or when will, or if it will, uh, Americans to to stop supporting concepts like that. Like, when will people stop saying, responding to people different from them by saying, let's criminalize it? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. My thought, honestly, and this is, this is not, um, this may not be happy, friendly, and, and or nice. I, I don't think it's ever going to happen in this country. I just don't, I don't see that as, as happening. I see, um, it being a slow fight for as long as the United States exists uh, of people trying to tell other people they can't do stuff and it having to be a long fight through courts and changes of things to, to, um, to, stop, to stop persecuting each separate instance. Yeah. So like we had, need, we had to have a Lawrence versus Texas, you know, to, to stop people from, harassing uh, gay folks. We yeah. had to have Virginia versus loving to keep to stop states from trying to criminalize interracial relationships and so on and so forth and so on. I think that's what it's going to be. I think it's just as long as the U.S. exists, Americans are, have a, an authoritarian streak and they like to, to send armed you know, people to, to beat up people who are doing stuff that they don't like. Yeah. And I don't think that's going to change. Um, but of course, all countries are mortal. The U.S. is, is just as mortal as any other country. It's not going to exist forever, um, which doesn't mean that in future, you know, unified Earth or in future cultures and in, in federation cultures or whatever, 
um, or a firefly-like culture, whatever, that those people will not have a different attitude. I'm just speaking about the United States as we know it, as this yeah. entity. Yeah. There is a, a DS9 episode um, what, that you might not have gotten to yet, actually, uh, where the crew goes to Ryza, and there's a group there called the New Essentials, who are kind of a 24th century Westboro Baptist church. Uh, I, that, that's a good touch. I didn't see that episode, but that's a really good, yeah, it's a good touch. Yeah, and they're real unhappy about what's going on on Ryza, and it's clearly a commentary on conservative, you know, contemporary groups. But I can imagine right. groups like that possibly existing in the Federation because oh, sure. of the, because you know, of the exchange of ideas and it being, you know, social um, anarchism. And what I liked best about their portrayal in the episode is that they basically hand out flyers and say, hey, come to the beach at five o'clock. We're going to do a thing. And people know what it is. They know they're going to get yelled at for having fun. But the Federation citizens do it anyway. And they listen to them and they're like, huh, no, I don't think so. I kind of like what I'm doing. And they, you know, go off and go about their day on Ryza. And I just liked that seemed like real democracy to me, like an exchange of ideas. Wouldn't that be wonderful if people could do that? If people could 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 go to a um, uh, you know a, a demonstration, let's say, yeah, um, and and actually listen peacefully to what the people say, and just walk away if they don't like it, yeah. instead of having to deplatform them or have a a noisy counter protest or call the cops <laughs> on them or yeah. whatever, whatever yeah. people do, <laughs> you know, I mean. Uh, yeah, that would be, boy, talk about utopian, though, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Westboro Baptist guys uh, mess with the weather machines later on in the episode and start to screw everything up. But, but well, there yeah, has uh, to be a, that's the thing, there has to be a, a, a for, for a TV show, you can't just have an episode where everybody mills around for a while and right. has a good time, and then they listen to somebody, and, and then they walk away from that yeah. person, and then nothing <laughs> happens at the end. I mean, you, you can't really do that. That's Roddenberry's dream. Conflict. <laughs> no conflict, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what you're describing. Uh, as we wrap up here, there's a few other Trek episodes that deal with sex work or implied sex work uh, that I thought we could touch on. Like I said, you know, being sure. what it is, a primetime family show, it never really gets all the way there, but there are a few interesting kind of scenarios. Uh, very early in the series, we see uh, in the episode Mud's Women, a situation yes. that I think probably around the offices was described as the white slavery episode, although it's yeah. maybe a little more complicated than that in the actual action of the episode. Um, I'd be interested to get your opinion on it, because what, what, I, what I see in the episode is I see Mud as this sort of... I guess, pimp-esque figure who is seeking is. profit in getting rid of these women. But the women themselves seem to be getting something out of it as well. Oh, sure they do. I mean, they're definitely getting, you know, because I mean, because he, I mean, remember when he comes back to the, when he finds out, and of course they don't say die lithium because it's an early episode, but he's yeah. like, lithium miners, Ruthie, rich lithium miners. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. You know, he's having to talk them into it. Yeah. Because they thought they were going to be going someplace else, and they're kind of like, "What? What, what are you? What are you thinking, Harry? Bringing us to this damn mining? What?" And then he's <laughs> yeah. like, "No, no, no, no." So yeah, he's he's certainly pimp-like, and of but there's course, something of a partnership, a business partnership, sort of there. Absolutely, and yeah. and of course, this is when I mean, this is getting into some really deep stuff here, but because we, we can talk about this, people make choices, and people make choices that aren't um, necessarily. A perfect situation. Laura Augustine, uh, the anthropologist, talks about this. It's like, you know, yeah. people 
make choices that they feel are the right choice at the moment, and they don't always come out to be the right choice. So it may be that the way I envision Harry Mudd is that he found these women, he did some fast talking, he gave them the Venus drug, and maybe once they were out in space, eh, maybe one or two of them might have had it. Well, certainly, um, uh, is it Ruth, the, the, the blonde one? Right. The, the one that we hear most from. Right. She seems all along that she's kind of, eh, eh, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Whereas the other two, uh, the, the, the whitish haired one and the, and the brunette, um, they're more like right on with his program. Yeah. And she's more like, I don't, maybe I made a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't have come, you know? And that's what I think it is. I think it, it doesn't do for us to remove agency from them. Uh-huh. Harry Mudd can still be scum without us having to make the women into pure victims. Sure. In other yeah. words, I, I think his, he's us. Cause when you think about it, Mudd, he's not a murderer or anything like that. He's a scam artist. He's a con man. Yeah. He conned them into coming with him and he's trying to con the miners out of, you know, out of money to, 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 to wive them, as he says, right, you know, right. to, to wives. so I think it's, it's, I think that's what it is. Is that that's that's the level of of evil that we're supposed to see Mud. I think I don't think we're supposed to see him as being a genuine bona fide slaver. Yeah. I think we're supposed to see him as being a scum, a con artist, a kind of guy who, the kind of guy who, if he were living in our world right now, would say to the the migrants, "Hey, I'll get you into um into England. You know, no, let's get, I'll get you into the United States. Here, get in this truck." Yeah. And then packs 40 of them in and some of them die from the heat. <laughs> right. He didn't set out to murder them. He was incredibly careless, um, yeah. you know, yeah. about, about, and I think that's, that's what's going on with, you know, uh, with, with Mud. I think that's where he is. He's just, he does not, he's not blatantly, blatantly evil, but he sure is careless and he doesn't care about other people. Yeah. Well, he cares about himself. <laughs> 100%. He cares about himself. He's narcissistic. <laughs> yeah. He's greedy. You know, and I think that's where I see him. Yeah, there is um, there's an episode I'm sure you're familiar with called Wolf in the Fold. Uh, where oh, yeah. The Jack the Ripper episode, which mostly focuses on the Jack the Ripper sort of element and the kind of uh, trial of Scotty. But there's an interesting sort of picture, a sort of sketch of this planet where we know that like, uh, quote unquote, pleasure things are going on. But it seems to be like a lot of family business, you know, in this episode, you've got the father who owns this uh, restaurant or, or club or cabaret or whatever. And his daughter is dancing. And then her boyfriend is like the bouncer on the door. And there's like this family based economy uh, that we see. And I see it. I see that really culturally speaking. um, I mean, obviously it's meant to look like, you know, London East end kind of thing, but it's also, I think that there's also a sort of a, Ah, kind of like uh, um, a kind of an exotic sort of pseudo Middle Eastern sort of a feel to it. You yeah, know what I'm yeah. saying? Like the, right. you know, the, the folk witchcraft and the, um, the dancing girls and the just, just, you know what I'm saying? I mean, obviously not, uh, not as patriarchal as, as Middle Eastern cultures in our world, but the same kind of an idea. Yeah. Um, I, I'm trying to remember because we covered that episode on the show a long time ago, and there was something specific. There was some factoid about belly buttons. Like that was the first 
belly button that had been on Star Trek? I mean, you must have seen a belly button on TV before. It's possible. I I don't. Gosh, now I'm. You, you, I think they gave her a second belly button or something. I can't remember. No, 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 no. What you're thinking of is um, another Gene Roddenberry pilot called Earth Two. Oh, that's right. And the mutant girl had a second belly button, and that was like what showed she was a mutant. That's right. Yes. Okay. Thanks for getting my uh, Roddenberry lore straight there. Oh, you're right. You're welcome. You're welcome. And of course, like all those folks, what I think is really funny is how um, Roddenberry has so many people that he, he keeps reusing because like um, in the sequel to that Earth 2, um, there's an episode that, well, he, he made two pilots, but it was, it's the second pilot. In the second pilot, we have Diana Muldaur and Ted Cassidy. Yeah, right. So he's using so, oh, and uh, and of course Major Barrett because he, she's at everything that he does. Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> you, you know what it was? It was they they put a, a jeweled flower in her navel, so you didn't see her navel specifically. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, that was those sixty censors. You know, Barbara Eden yeah. on on um, on you know, and I dream of Jeannie couldn't have her navel show either. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's uh, there's another episode of Enterprise that I want to talk about. This isn't sex work necessarily. It's an episode called Cogenitor, and it's about uh, the uh, NX01 meets a race of people that have three sexes. They have a, a nominally male and a female sex, and then when they want to procreate, there is a third sex. Yes, I do remember. I don't remember process. that one well, but I remember yeah. it. it's not well. And in that and that uh, cogenitor uh, sex or, or uh, uh, species is. A totally, it's a total underclass situation. Like they are given, you know, no rights, and they are carted from place to place, and basically That's right. just they're almost like a pet. Base, yeah, like a pet, really. Yeah, yeah. I do remember that now. Now that you're, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. I do remember that episode now. So it, it's just, I don't know if it, you would consider it like sexual slavery or something like that, but it's definitely. I think it is. Sure yeah, it the, is. yeah, the cogenitor is getting no real benefit from uh, from the relationship, right? Because because the, the the cogenitor is not even considered a partner, right? Yeah, to totally subservient. I mean, it, totally subservient. Yeah, I do remember yeah. that, and and I mean that's yeah, it, you're right. That that is a kind of a sexual slavery. You know, we it's funny, isn't it? How and this is of course more in the United States, but still, it's what we're talking about, and that's the environment we're talking in. Sure, um, is that. So much of, of American culture and Western culture in general uh, decouples sex and procreation, yeah. even though obviously they are not uncouplable. Well, no. But yet we do it all the time. We, yeah. we pretend we had the Madonna horror thing, right? We pretend that um, being pragmatic about sex and being a mother are somehow exclusive, even though sex is what makes you a mother. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and I think that's what's, what, so when you talk about like cogenitor, um, the, the cogenitor, you know, we, we, I think you, you're looking at a situation where we are kind of mentally decoupling it. We're saying, oh no, well, it's not about sex, but yes, it is, isn't it? And it's a question of class too, because they, the laws in that case are enforced to keep that, that third sex as a lower class, you know, to keep, yes. to, to make them sort of an untouchable kind of thing. Yes. There's one more episode. Uh, there's an episode that I also think that you might not have reached yet in DS9 called Wrongs Darker Than Death or Night. And in that episode, uh, Kira discovers that her mother 
um, may have been a uh, lover of Gul Dukat during the occupation in kind of a uh, comfort woman arrangement. Really? See, Which is that's, very, that's very similar to, to the, well, very similar to what the, um, to what the, uh, the, a lot of women did during the Nazi occupation we were talking about yeah. earlier. Yeah. It's you know, a, it's a, a lot of women did that, you know, because was, yeah, because I mean, when you've got one group of people that has all the power, you know, a conquering race or a conquering co- country or whatever, yeah. um, some women are going to do what they have to do to survive in that culture. Yeah. And it may not be pretty to what to others. Others may not like it. Yeah. And I think Trek has always been good at like we've been talking about this entire episode, trying to represent these things and examine them through through allegory. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, uh, people are ignorant about stuff like this, and our leaders are extremely ignorant about these issues. Uh, Where can listeners of the show go to learn more? The easiest thing is you can start. If you start with my website, it kind of acts as a sort of a a nexus. I'll mention other things, and I'll link to things, and you can follow my Twitter feed, and I'm talking to other sex workers. So even if you just start with me, you will pretty quickly branch out into, oh, look, she linked this magazine article or she's talking to this other person let's go see what this other person has to say yeah um and so i think if you if you start just by by googling maggie mcneil uh, and the last name is m-c-n-e-i-l-l um if you google that and start with mine you'll get all sorts of other places pretty quick um and because i'm you know i would hardly represent my own writings to be the be all and end all but my point is that they're good jumping off place yeah, I mean, that certainly, in researching this show, that's how it worked for me. I just started looking yeah. at your blog, and it took me all sorts of places. Exactly. You've also got your book of published blog posts, The Essential Maggie McNeil, and you have two short story collections as well. Uh, where can people get yes. those? Yes, uh, Amazon. Just search for Maggie McNeil, and you'll see uh, the two short story collections are Ladies of the Night and, um, and uh, The Forms of Things Unknown. Okay. And interestingly enough, one of those, uh, Ladies of the Night, has a story called Necessity, which is set in a future time in which there is uh, a sex worker in a starship. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay and the cool. story, the story looks at her, you know, looks at her life and her philosophy, because uh, she's basically treated as almost like a therapist. Okay. And so she, in the story, she's talking to a crewman who has not come to see her when he was supposed to, and basically she's trying to find out what's going on there. Okay. Like why? What do you you know? Why don't you want to come and see me? Kind of thing. Sure. Um, so those two story collections, and of course the essential Maggie McNeil Volume One and Volume Two should be out in April. Uh, knock, knocking wood here. Okay. Uh, uh, but but yeah, should be. Sounds fascinating. Uh, Maggie also has an article in the new issue of Reason Magazine about the damage done by FOSTA SESTA to the sex industry and economically underprivileged women in particular. You can read that on Reason.com, and I'll leave a link to the article in the show notes. Maggie, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. You're very, very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Your Honor, a courtroom is a crucible. In it, we burn away irrelevances until we are left with a pure product, the truth, for all time. Oh, man, this is so intense. Data is on trial for his life. I know. This episode, The Measure of a Man, is based on the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision of 1857. 
And every week on Backtracking, we take a look at the real-world events that inspired classic Star Trek episodes. Sorry. Who are you? <laughs> We're the hosts of Backtracking. I'm Caliban. You will both be taken to the brig and from there to the nearest star base, where you will answer charges for what you have done. And I'm Gooey Fame. This is not a game. This is life and death. You, you can follow us on Twitter. Backtracking is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You go f*** yourself. <laughs>